Hello and welcome to this episode of Incidacast. Today, we're going to be ending off our Scream series by reviewing the newly released Scream, released in 2022, directed by Matt Bettinelli Oppen and Tyler Gillett. They always come back. The killer is a part of something in the past. This one just feels different. You're all in danger. Mom? Where? Sydney. Hello. Welcome back, everyone. I think this is the moment we've all been waiting for, which is a review of the New Scream film released this year. Uh, obviously, I've been building up to it for the last few episodes on the channel. And for many people, they've been waiting for this film for 11 years. So, uh, before we get into this, this episode will be completely uh, spoiler minefield. So, if for whatever reason you thought you would come here and listen to a review of this film and me not talk about things that happen deeply within the film, you're crazy. So please go away, watch that, come back and listen and let me know if uh, any of my thoughts and feelings match anything that you felt watching the film because I think there's a lot to digest and I think there's a lot for everybody to take away from this, um, whether you're a fan or someone who you know vaguely knows what Scream's about. It may divide people, it may not, but I'm going to give you my honest opinions and uh, my interpretations from the film. Hopefully that will provide some interesting content for you to listen to. Here we go. Uh, So unlike other reviews I've done on this channel, it's going to be less of like a a step-by-step of the narrative of what happens and then me sort of like breaking down what I think about the film as it progresses uh, and the things that work and doesn't work. Because uh, this is like a straight-from-cinema sort of reaction and review, so therefore like I don't have... Um, the actual footage to just comb over as much as I want and go back and review and, and, you know, pause and all that kind of stuff. So this will be uh, a little bit more freehand, a little bit more just my interpretation, my just feelings about the film without uh, going into very, very specifics. I think the first thing I'll say, if anyone obviously watched the last episode, my theories about this film, I think, was 100% correct. And I think I was confirmed. And I was very happy in the cinema. I was sort of laughing and, and sort of chuffed with myself. I felt very validated as a complete nerd to sort of predict what the narrative of Scream was going to be. Um, This sort of reliance on how modern day films uh, sort of want to become like a a true authentic sequel, right? So because of that, you have to go back to the original and sort of rewrite a new history, rewrite a new timeline. It's kind of what they were doing. And obviously, you know, they, they go into a lot more detail in the film about, you know, you have to bring back legacy characters, so the fans will be annoyed, which is 100% true. You know, they said in this, like, you couldn't have Halloween without um, Jamie Lee Curtis as, as Laurie, and that's 100% correct. And Halloween Kills sort of uh, extended even further, brought even more people back from the first film. And they make a lot of references to Halloween in the screen film, uh, which I have a whole segment on that as well. So I've kind of wrote my notes in like sort of very like little categories, if that makes sense. So the first thing I think is like the tone of this film. And I think like unlike films before, um, like the Scream films, I think it almost had like a complete fourth wall breaking like acceptance um, that they're living within a movie, um, that they should follow movie rules and that basically like we're not living in real life anymore. And when you compare this to the the prior screen films, like this was never the case. So if you think about the way that rules were set up in the previous films, so in Scream 1, Billy and Loomis were kind of setting the idea that this is a movie, this is all one big movie, but Sydney was like the antithesis of that. Sydney was always like, no, this is real life. This is not a movie. In this film, it's the complete opposite. All the characters, even the main characters, accept that they are within a movie, and therefore they must play by the movie rules in order to survive. I think when you look at sort of like the overall plot, interestingly enough, 
many who do follow those rules do end up surviving because they apply things in the right scenarios and therefore they survive. So that's that's kind of bizarre. But it's a very interesting change and I think if you're going to make a new film with, let's say, a new set of spin-offs of Scream films with new casts, the only way that this could differentiate itself from the originals and not be just a carbon copy is maybe this kind of attitude shift where, like, people now have, I don't know, let go of reality <laughs> and they just sort of see every situation like this as if like they're in some actual real life horror movie. I don't know how that would work, but anyway. Sydney and Gail within this maintain their um their usual stance. That this isn't a film, this is real life, which is why, you know, they have this kind of attitude like, I'm just gonna come here and kill him and go home <laughs> because it's just another person in another mask. And they do this all the time. Unlike Dewey, Dewey sort of like does the opposite. Dewey um, accepts that this is a horror film and he also gives advice that this is a horror film and this is new advice. This is not the advice that was given by Randy uh, in the first Scream. This is brand new advice. And I think this is, on a side note, a slightly part of the issue of the film as well, which is it creates so many rules. You know, the original films are a little bit more concise in what rules had to be applied, okay? And in this... Um, every character just makes up rules, and those rules are just rules now. And not to say that they are not legitimate rules within Hollywood that maybe writers and directors follow when they write certain scripts, but um, it did feel a bit like, well, anyone could just make up a rule, and therefore now that rule is just a rule. But alas, I think Dewey did accept that this is a horror movie, and he got caught up to it, and maybe that's the reason why he died, because he now becomes... I know this can sound really weird, but he now becomes a part of the plot of a movie, as opposed to how Sydney and Gail sees, no, there is no movie. This is this is real life. These people are just psychotic. It kind of makes you wonder, like, if it's almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy to accept what Stab is doing to people who imitate it, as opposed to just ignoring it and just saying, no, this is real life. So another part of the tone I think was quite good. Um, it generally just felt a lot more modern. Uh, and I guess it's Scream now with the polish and clean nature that a lot of modern films give to more recent installments. And this is because even when you look at Scream 4, which was the most recent film since this in 2011, um, the picture quality there is still, you know, not bad. I'm sure like some 4K versions look pretty good. But in some parts, I always felt the film looked a little bit grainy, a little bit um, washed almost. It's kind of like um, certain people had like almost like a filter on. And because of that, it doesn't always translate to maybe like lower resolution versions. Maybe like in a more like 4K HD thing, it looks really clean, but... You know, if you watch like a regular DVD, it looks kind of washed. It looks kind of like blurred as if people are walking around with like a filter on. This is the complete opposite. This is like modern day cameras, modern day editing. It's very clean and pretty to look at. And because of that, it means we get a lot more detail that we didn't get in previous films. You know, whenever... Um, Scream went to Scream 2, went to Scream 3, you know, they always talked about, oh, well, the audience wants a more increase in violence and gore, right? We need to up the gore now in each film. What they saw as gore back then was probably just, like, a little bit more blood on people and never anything super in-depth, you know? This is 100% different. These days now, like, we film a section with, like, Dylan Minuet where it's, like, this knife is going to pierce through one part of your neck and come out of the other side. And we're going to see that in real time happen along with the blood pouring out. We can do that now. Because cinema has come such a long way where physical, practical stuff can be enhanced by really like realistic and compelling CGI. That we get a level of detail to death scenes that is on par with just 
physically watching someone get stabbed, basically. Um, whereas in the past, it was all kind of like um, cloak and dagger. You know, there was a lot of like uh, stabbed from behind where you never see the impact and you know what I mean? And you always just like assume the person's had like a really bad injury, but you know. And that was the one thing as well. A lot of Ghostface in the past would just do like one stab and that one stab's like enough to just kill somebody. This film does the complete opposite of that. Um, it has more of an emphasis on stabbing <laughs> and obviously it has more of an emphasis on stab, the film. And because of that, like stabbing just feels more impactful in this film. Stabbing feels dangerous, I think, for the first time in a screaming film. And in the previous films, it was almost like a bit of a joke because, you know, it almost felt like unless the plot wanted you to die, you could get stabbed and live in so many of the screaming films. Like, it was so afraid to kill off, like, certain people. And, and in this, like, every wound and, and injury that someone has feels real and it looks like it hurts. And the actors do a really good job of kind of portraying how this, like, affects, like, their movement and their ability to do certain things. You know, that makes it feel really grounded and very real. And we get, like, loads of different variations of knife work. You know, we're talking, like, slow, deep cuts, you know, fast, rapid, like, stabs, um, cutting and, and, like, you know, little quick cuts and stuff like that. There's a lot of different variations now. It's not just, like one thing and and that just in a weird way makes it feel more human right because like this is just someone using a knife it's not just like oh this is the standard hollywood hollywood way of like killing somebody it also um doesn't heavily rely on technology there was there's a good amount of technology in this film um this is kind of my worry right because this is something that can as we've i think ever as i've seen in the past can make a film feel really like dated this however wasn't really the case. Yeah, we had, like, the door locking stuff at the beginning of the film, but that was just reserved to the beginning of the film. And there was a bit of, like, a, a weird thing with tracking. Nothing too crazy. I don't think that's technology that's going to go away anytime soon. I think tracking is going to be very much um, a part of future life. And, obviously, in films these days, they use a lot of fake operating software. You know what I mean? And because of that, like, that doesn't date it as well. You can't just look at a phone and say, like... Oh, that is that specific version of uh, an iPhone that, you know, that particular operating software, you know, like this isn't um, iOS 10, you know what I mean? So then when we're looking at this in 20 years, we think, oh my God, iOS 10, that was like 20 years ago. Like that's so old, you know what I mean? And, and that kind of stuff is good. A lot of films do that these days and it kind of like, I think helps um, as long as the whole film's not centered around like dumb technology. Luckily it wasn't, it was much more grounded in real life. And because of that, it felt like a better love letter to the original, uh, even using landlines. You know, I, I didn't think, I didn't know if the film was going to use a landline because why would you when everyone has a mobile phone? But, but they made landlines relevant again. So that's good. Talking about the um, opening scene, obviously this was mostly in the trailer and I was kind of expecting that she was just going to die because, you know, it was in the trailer Obviously, in the trailer, you could see that was the opening scene. And in the opening scene, people die. And I was fine with that, particularly being spoiled, because it has no real relevance, usually, on the bigger film. Because all it does was just... All, like, the opening scene ever does is just get the ball rolling. It, it, and it gets, like, Sydney involved and all that kind of stuff. It was never anything where, like, someone really major impactful character is, is stuck in the original and they get murdered from the get-go. Turns out that a bit of a spin... Uh, she doesn't die, and she actually becomes quite a main integral part of the character. And this really... It's interesting, and plot-wise, I get it. Because if that wouldn't have happened, her sister wouldn't have come back, and then the events wouldn't have unfolded. But I don't 100% know if I can believe that that's all what was going on. And, and this is, like, my general feeling from the film, but, like, you know, I know Sam, uh, the main character, had a lot of um, suspicions about her throughout the film. But I didn't, by the end of the film, feel like any of those suspicions were gone. Uh, it sounds really weird, but, like, her, if it was her boyfriend, 
I mean, obviously it wasn't her boyfriend because her boyfriend was with Sam. So obviously this would have been Amber that tried to kill Tara. And obviously she didn't die. She went to the hospital and that was kind of a motive for Sam to come back and make contact with her sister. I can't help but think that even if you killed her, she still would have come back anyway. Like, there's a funeral to go to, is there not? Like, it seems weird to keep her alive. It's hard to tell if that was deliberate or not. I'm guessing by dialogue that they have in the film where Ghostface says that he missed certain things, that, like, that it was unintentional that she was meant to be alive. It, it doesn't, like, settle some of the doubts for me that somehow there's something else going on in this film. But speaking of Sam, we're going to have to talk about Sam. Sam is the leading role, and in many ways, part of the issue, I think, in this film... And it, it's nothing against the actress. I think she did a an alright job. There's, there's just something a bit odd about including visions of Billy Loomis. Okay, this is the big thing. Which is, she, so she made some references that she went away and she had a load of drugs. And I'm guessing from this, she's getting some type of psychosis where she sees visions of Billy Loomis. And Billy Loomis is sort of guiding her almost through most parts of this film. So there's reasons flat out why the visions bit specifically uh, is an issue. So one, she found out this when she was a child. I think she said she was 12. There's no distinctive uh, age of how old Billy would be. Like there's no like specifics on the age difference between them. So I don't know if at 12 years old or even after that, if she would have known what Billy Loomis was even like. <laughs> um, I assume she probably saw pictures of him, but, you know, it, it's hard to just see someone that had never made any kind of impactful thing in your life become someone that you speak to on a daily basis it feels so much I don't know maybe more believable that she sees somebody else who she knows personally but like is not there or someone like completely unrelated but to see Billy Loomis himself is kind of bizarre to me and obviously in this there's I think there's a lot of de-aging um understandable Skeet obviously isn't the age that he was in Scream 1 and this is very, like, jarring to me, because it's not bad de-aging. Like, I think it was actually pretty good, but it also wasn't good de-aging either. It was, like, the the long shots, where he was a little bit further away, were kind of better than the close-up stuff, like in the car uh, mirror reflection, because it almost looks really bizarre like the kind of like obscuring so much of what his face looks like because they don't want his face to be there and in that case like why is he there to begin with like you know if, if this is causing so much work he doesn't have to physically be there why can't he just be a voice you know is this just to get skeet back if like if skeets are in the film like is the audience just not going to accept that they're related and that you know she can see him or hear him and stuff, or both. It, I mean, I'm not saying that Skeet shouldn't come back, but I think I would have really have liked it been it have been to be less of a Billy thing and maybe more of a Stu thing. I mean, we had Stu's house; that was the main thing. Stu, law wise, um, is supposedly the one that Wes wrote, not intending him to die, and the fans had speculated the most that. Stu would come back. I think Stu coming back somehow would have been a pretty cool idea. I don't know. I think if one of them was going to come back, I'd rather it was Stu, but it's Billy. So, and I think the reason why this also really doesn't work narrative-wise is it creates this really weird and complex relationship with Billy Loomis. We know that he's bad and he's blamed for a lot of the things that happen, and for causing this whole thing, but it creates this weird dynamic where he's almost being made to be sympathetic and helpful towards Sam, and therefore kind of makes him the hero. 
Um, and it makes a really, it leaves like a really bad taste in your mouth because it makes it feel like even at the end of the film when everyone's safe and in an ambulance that like Tara still isn't safe because she stabbed people now. It's like she could crack at any moment and just murder people. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't fill me with a lot of confidence that Sam is a good person. Outside of the Billy stuff, um, I think Sam Carpenter was just a little bit like meh, like it was a little bit boring, and I think Tara was like a little bit more interesting, but not really. I actually found for me in this film my favorite person and the one that I was obsessed with uh, was Mindy, uh, played by uh, Jasmine Savoy Brown, I believe. Uh, who was basically like the new Randy in this film, who just relayed all like the um, information about the rules and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and like constantly questioning people and, and making and setting tests for people to make sure that they're complying with like the rules. And I thought she was brilliant. She was like my favorite part of the film. She kept things going for me. So just to talk about some other little sections before I get into like you know, the real meat of the actual spoilery stuff. This is all sort of like um, general feelings about the the concepts of the film and, and less about specific spoilers. The spoiler bit will come in a bit. So there was another thing about this film that really stood out to me, which I can't tell if it's, you know, a hindrance or a good thing, which is the references to Halloween. You know, we've got to look at the fact that we've added new characters, including like, Sam Carpenter, for example, you know, is related to Billy Loomis. Sam Loomis is obviously Dr. Loomis. Carpenter is obviously John Carpenter, who did Halloween. There's there's so much, like, new references now to Halloween. I think Halloween as a film, especially when you look at Halloween 2018 and Halloween uh, Kills, cements Hollywood's, like, progression over the, like, last 10 years, I guess. You know, and the film talks about this. Referencing the lack of, like, good ideas... Uh, is really pivotal, and the film has like a real big battle over um, highbrow, high concept horror, over like your generic run of the mill uh, Hollywood stuff that they release whenever. And uh, there's obviously a strong argument that both films should exist, and that there's a space for both sides. I think like everyone can agree on that. I think the film puts forward arguments for that uh, very well. That there should be. Um, space for both. You know, that yes, original slashes that came before are important and dear to our hearts, and fans are, like, emotionally invested in those films and don't want to see the series be trashed and ruined by, like, dumb sequels. And as the film states, you know, we might prefer films like The Babadook and The Witch and, you know, things like The Lighthouse and stuff like that, but obviously what is achieved in its complexity and thought-provoking narratives that, that sometimes, you know, there's nothing wrong with, like, just a good film where, like, people get chased, you know. Sometimes you do want just a good popcorn entertaining horror film, and I think the film tries to remind fans that horror can do both. That, yes, we know Hollywood lacks a lot of ideas, but there is a space for both, and both do exist, you know. It's the kind of thing that, like, Hollywood still has to try and make money, unfortunately, and the, the best way to do that is to, like, create new installments in these franchises as opposed to take a more risky and more lucrative approach, which is to put all your money into something that nobody's ever seen or heard of, to not know, like, whether people will actually buy tickets to go watch it. I agree that people do know, it is okay to like the trash that comes out <laughs> you know, and like the remakes and the spin-offs and and like the a million and one different um you know spin-offs, even like to the conjuring films and, and like to the Insidious franchise and stuff. You know, people got really sick of seeing like Annabelle and like they just drop a random ghost within a film and then they could just pick it a spin-off. You know. Hollywood's gonna do what Hollywood's gonna do. But it doesn't mean that like those films are bad. Bear in mind that like although people hate the game, they shouldn't hate the players. Because sometimes 
get really good directors and writers and they, they create um a really good spin-off that on its own is actually like a really interesting film i think a really good one is like the second annabelle film uh the one where it was like on a farm and stuff like that really surprised a lot of people and it's it's you can get this you know you can get a situation where like you, you give a film to someone and they can do something good with it or you give someone a concept and say like here it is this is the universe you're in this is what we want you to write about go for it and, and see what they create i think in in reference though to the halloween bit specifically i do think halloween is used as a bit of a scapegoat uh for the film to tell its narrative because there's many more examples of this and it does kind of reference some of them but obviously halloween is the most recent and most prevalent film to be doing this right and you know it's got very divisive opinions on some of its installments but halloween is the only slasher really being made at the moment like there's at the moment there's no new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Obviously, that is on its way. But there's no Friday the 13th. There's no uh, Nightmare on Elm Street films. You know, there's nothing else within the ve- in this vein, right? There's no more My Bloody Valentines and, and typical slasher films that get remade all the time. Halloween, in, in a way, it's is on its own. So, yeah, it will be, like, maybe the only example that this film can, like, heavily reference and, in many ways, pay, like, a nice love letter to. Um, but I do feel bad for Halloween because, you know, I do think as a separate topic, I do think that Jamie Lee Curtis is and has been very passionate about Halloween and trying to tell the narrative that she thinks Halloween should be told. And whether people agree on that or not is up to them, but obviously I respect her for just wanting to tell at least an interesting story with Halloween because if the studios have their hands with it you know and just create anything with the Halloween label we'll get some of the the trash that came out towards the end of the Halloween franchise and at least someone who's within the first original series and in most of them um, actually like cares about it and wants to create like a good compelling film and story it is kind of a shame that Halloween is sort of getting a bit of the flack I guess, um, because it's kind of the only film within the horror, at least, that's massively doing this. All those other films that are, you could consider kind of slashery at the moment, things like Fear Street on Netflix and, and Terrifier, um, they're not anywhere near the same caliber, and they're not they're anywhere near the same appreciation from like horror fans and general audiences. And they cater way more to specific types of tastes right fear street is more like a current gen slasher film you know what i mean it's very like modern and kind of relevant to younger people and then terrifier is you know kind of a bit more of an an ode to grindhouse films which is a very niche interest for a lot of people and even for a lot of horror fans to be honest so like those things are never gonna be included in this type of stuff and I think in in one way you could argue that the messaging doesn't hit as hard as Scream 4 in this. And I kind of think that that's the case. I think Scream 4 made a, a better argument generally over remakes and how it was more prevalent throughout the whole movie. Especially when you think about like that amazing question where um, Ghostface asks, like, you know, name the movie that name the like groundbreaking remake of the horror film blah, blah blah and then you get like that reel of horror films that have ever been remade you know it's actually in many ways the same kind of messaging as scream 4 i just think scream 4 did it better but scream 5 has like two separate narratives i think so one is this it's what they, what they call the requels which is totally relevant this is the theory that i had they were going to have requels um, and then they add a second motive in narrative. So I think this um, comes kind of left field. I was expecting like um, the motive from the two killers a little bit more ridiculous, a bit more nuanced, and in many ways like the original. You know, like the motive for Billy and Stu was just that Billy got screwed over and horror films helped him 
um, let's say channel that into a particular way of dealing with it. Uh, and in this, it actually is a lot more similar to Scream 2 in many ways because Billy Loomis's mother and, um, oh god, what's his name? Anyway, the guy from the second film, they met online on a forum for, a forum for serial killers or something crazy. And basically, like, that's how they met. So Billy's mother just, like, recruited him. And in many ways, this is kind of the same thing. It's just two people that meet online in, like, on, like, Reddit. And they both have an interest in horror films that Hollywood ruin uh, horror films. And therefore, like, they want to create their own, like, version of of what a a new installment would be in the Stab, quote-unquote, franchise. Uh, it's it's pretty left field, but it does have a very uh, extremely important message, which actually I think is really important and, and separate from Scream as a whole, which is it, it's kind of referencing the dangers and risks of online radicalization, right? Um, people who are generally contained in their own echo chambers of beliefs about how certain aspects of life should be. And they might convince each other to, like, act on those beliefs. And it can be in ways that are are pretty harmful for other people. This is very, very prevalent and very relevant to modern day, which I actually think is a much stronger narrative than maybe people might give this credit for, because it is the cause behind a lot of real issues. It's... Not to get like super political about stuff, but you know, you're talking about domestic terrorism is a big one. Fake news, conspiracy theories, you know, uh, things about governments doing this to you, you know, the vaccines are a lie, that type of thing. This is how uh, things like online forums and echo chambers can radicalize people into doing and believing very crazy things to the point where they might do something in real life which becomes then like a shock to people because this is not a part of everybody else's reality. But to these people, this is their entire reality because they get sucked into this and it becomes like a bit of a community and in many ways probably a bit like a cult. <laughs> and I think it, on par, makes it equally as good as, as prior motives within the film. Probably stronger than other motives. I do think the strongest motive, aside from Scream 1, is Scream 2. Uh, I think revenge is... A good motive as any. I think Scream 4 and Scream 3 have weaker motives. And and I think this is on par with those those two films for me, at least. The film made an interesting reference about, you know, how can online discourse be toxic? Because we're just fans and and fans love the film and they want the best thing for the film. Like there's no way that um a fan base could be toxic. So Richie, uh obviously Sam's boyfriend, one of the killers. It says this, you know, he just couldn't understand how a fandom could be toxic because, you know, fans love the film. And this is exactly how this online radicalization stuff like affects people, right? They don't realize a lot of how they hurt and, and ruin discourse and, and ruin fun for people uh, when people start to like, you know, sort of dictate to people what they can and can't feel about certain films. I think like a really good example of this, maybe not horror specific, you know, you could say, uh, like, maybe about, like, Marvel films and other superhero films, you know, where people get very, like, protective and very, like, elitist over superhero films and sort of, like, dictating to people online, like, you know, why you can and can't, like, like or dislike certain things in a film. And, and it happens, it happens a lot. It's actually very, very relevant. I'm actually impressed that they included this because I wouldn't have thought of that. To be honest, even though it's completely relevant, that wouldn't have been my go-to idea if I thought about making a screaming film. I think I, I would have rele- I think I would have done the first one, you know, the whole recall angle. But this goes with it even further. Um, so let's talk about the killers. So this is where I'm going to get a little bit more spoilery. I'm going to talk about like the actual two killers and sort of some of the more of the cast. I'll put like in a bit of like an honorable mention, and then I'm going to wrap this up. I'm not going to make this super long. So the killer reveal was kind of nice. It was good how much the original were. Billy revealed he was a killer by shooting Randy. And in this, Amber reveals that she's the killer by 
shooting one of the girls at the party. Uh, what's her name? She's called Liv Mackenzie. Yeah, so I think, like, that was a really nice uh, homage. And I kind of like that the second killer wasn't revealed straight away. You know, we, we still had some s surprise, which is kind of cool. Uh, I really like that, especially how that person stayed in costume as well for a little bit. I kind of would like that dragged that out a little bit more. I felt in this film for me, uh, which is sort of separate from the other films that I watched, um, like, I didn't really feel this about the third and fourth. And I'm not quite sure about the second, because I think the second took me a while to realize what was going on. I watched that when I was a little bit younger. This movie was, like, the first time I watched Scream, and, like, I didn't want to know who the killer was, because the mystery was, like, more interesting, you know? Like, I was maybe it's because I was just looking for more breadcrumbs and some more ideas, but the film didn't give you anything. In many ways, this is kind of what Scream 3 did, but kind of better. Because I think narratively it was just better. You know, it didn't give you any kind of hints to who the killer could be because it made a really big prevalent point from the get-go that everybody is suspicious on purpose. And everybody accused each other of being the killer at one point in the film. So therefore, like, it, it's hard to pin it down on any one person. Unlike in Scream 3, where nobody really pinned anything on anyone, it's just nobody ever talked about who the killer could be, really. It was just like, it was almost like a disinterest into what was going on. Whereas this was like an over-enthusiastic interest into who the killer was in the horror film and, and like, you could be the killer, you could be the killer, that type of thing. I like that this felt equally as planned as Scream 4. I think Amber and Richie, the two killers, uh, definitely felt that this was really planned and, and rudimented as opposed to like Scream 1 to 3, which kind of felt a bit more like impulse and kind of just wing things on on the day kind of thing and I kind of like that more calculated angle to it because you know I think it kind of wraps up the perfect sort of mystery whodunit thing you know and this is kind of what Richie was talking about you know Scream is always about like a like a whodunit kind of horror film I totally agree and I think you can't have the whodunit vibe without having some element of plan right or it's otherwise it's just random and it doesn't feel rewarding to find that out because it could have just been anyone at any time as opposed to like, no, these two people did this from A to B to C and this is how they did it and this is their process and their thought patterns and this is why they did things in this order and why these specific people were targeted. Like, I find that it's just a bit more interesting because otherwise, like, if, if you have, like, set targets, there's a reason behind that. If you don't have set targets, then there's no reason why you aren't killing certain people why does uh gail and sydney just get like a stab you know why why don't they just stab him in the face why don't they just i don't know like just slash across the stomach and 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 like gut them there and then you know what i mean like i think a bit more intent is kind of a good thing even though sydney was like intended to die anyway but she didn't but okay anyway all in all though like amber and richie together I liked their sort of enthusiasm. I didn't like them as characters. There's a lot of stuff that just didn't work for me about this. I don't believe that they really loved each other and that there was any kind of relationship. This felt just like Scream 4. There's just no way Charlie and Jill in Scream 4 just were in love with each other. Which just just felt really fake and obviously Jill killed him anyway so that kind of proves it and in this like Richie and Amber like th there was nothing there like to make you believe that and I know it was kind of like a part of online chat you know but it felt really weird to me and then there's certain things that just really broke immersion because I think the hospital scene was like one of my favorite bits with Ghostface you know I love that the ghost face in this film is not afraid to like attack people out in the open around other people because it shows that nobody notices because everyone's always sat on the phone. And I think that's like a really good point. Uh, even the police were sat on the phone in this film when they're meant to be guarding people. When Amber announced that she was the one who killed Dewey and that she was excited to kill Gail, I just, I just couldn't believe that in the slightest. And the reason is that the actress that plays her is five for three. 
And the ghost face we saw in the hospital was not five foot three. Basically the same height, if not taller than Dewey. And I know this is because they usually have one person in costume all the time, so that like every scene's consistent and you can't like guess who it is by like height and, and stuff like that. It just made it really hard to believe that that, at the very least, was Amber and not Richie. I don't know. I mean, they didn't... It's not like they didn't make Amber look strong. She looked very, very strong and very, very capable of overpowering people and, you know, stabbing them like crazy. I just... I don't know. That just kind of broke immersion for me because all I could do at that moment was just sit back and think of that hospital scene and think... Was that Amber? Did that feel like Amber? No. And in the first scream, you could tell in many ways what was Billy and, and what was Stu. You know, people have loads of theory videos about this on YouTube, you know, like whether one's left-handed and one's right-handed. You know, how, like, uh, one prefers, like, you know, sort of regular stabbing motions, the other person prefers, like, the overhead double-hand stabbing thing. There's There's loads of theories on that where people can... Uh, break down like who was who and who did what but in this like I don't I don't know if there's that much detail it's hard to say and I didn't really like um I didn't really believe that either of them really warranted that position it's very weird I don't know I, I can't put my finger on it it just didn't feel right <laughs> but you know whatever uh, at the scene as well we've got like Sam sort of escaping them and and like she's getting chased down the stairs and she drops the she goes for the knife and billy's like oh the knife is there you know we get it and stab him and like she goes absolutely crazy and just like butchers richie and all i can think is like how are you not the killer <laughs> like or at least a killer or, or anything how are you not going to become the killer in in like stab six or oh, scream six rather you know it, it's feels very, very weird as a whole. A few honourable mentions, though, because we should talk about the rest of the cast, because it wasn't just, just them. I'm going to talk about some of the people who were in the film. So I think we'd start off with uh, Dylan, who played Wes. Obviously, nice little homage to Wes there. Dylan was very, very good in this. I really enjoyed him a lot. And I loved how he was, like, the son of Deputy Judy, and Judy, like, you know, as ever, is very, like, particular about the law and doing things in the right and just way and he was like super overprotective is in many ways that she was as well i i love that and it was a shame that he, was di he died uh, but i knew he was going to die i knew that he wasn't going to be the killer even from looking at the promotional material and stuff okay the reasons for how i knew this is dylan and uh jack quaid who played richie these two are the most notable actors i'd say on on this list aside from like the og people and Dylan would have been a little bit too predictable. And I think Jack, like, I think Jack just has a bit more experience, potentially, with handling that type of a role compared to Dylan. I think when you look at, like, his stuff from, like, Don't Breathe and Certain Reasons Why and other films that, and other films that he's been in, you know, he plays that innocent person much better than he plays the like the persecutor of stuff it would have been nice to see him try that angle you know especially because uh he played what was that other netflix film he was in the one with the abandoned house you know not great but like this is his role his song he is the he is a victim in horror films like this is an out typecast um hollywood don't break that often unless they think you really have like the diverse sort of acting capabilities to take on you know, a new kind of dynamic like that. And when you compare this to Jack, there's just a lot more going on in his sort of discography of things. Not only has he been in war films, more TV series, had a lot more experience generally as acting, he's also done a lot of voice work. And realistically, like, when you're trying to compel the audience to believe that, like, you're crazy, but obviously not just ridiculously silly crazy, Voice work plays a massive part of this. I think that's quite very underrated because everything about your tone and your infliction and how you control your voice really like sells if something feels believable or not. And a lot of people, when they 
pretend to be crazy in films. Like they, they just sound ridiculous. And it's because like they don't have that kind of experience to portray an emotion or to portray a thought as an emotion in a way that feels like really compelling and interesting to people. So to run down the list a little bit super quick. So um here we go. Sydney Prescott, amazing as ever. I love that she was uh you know, she's a family woman now and like this is just something she feels like she has to do because now there's a bit of a personal stake because Dewey's died, so gotta get involved. Uh Gail, amazing as ever, strong as ever, and she has this like more warming, compassionate side to her now and that's kind of nice. It's nice to see a bit of growth. You know, the the hard hitting reporter stuff is over. She can't can keep that up for like decades. You know, she's got a new job now, a new life, and and a new city. And it's nice to see that change. Dewey is obviously amazing. He's actually like really central and focused to this film, and is the tie in to the legacy characters. And he has a lot of stuff to work with this film, and I think it's actually the best like Dewey stuff that we've had since the original, because I think a lot of the later screen films really played on him being just like a bit of a slapstick comedy, like punching bag. And this actually, you know, they, they treat him with a lot of respect and they make him a lot more grounded and remember that he had a lot of authority as a police officer at one point and a sheriff. But Sam Carpenter, meh. Deputy Judy, loved having her back. She was amazing. Loved seeing Judy in like a modern day America. It's just so good. Tara, pretty good. Actress was very, very good. I really enjoyed Tara a lot. Um, I liked her um, I liked her on screen a lot more than I did Sam. So in their engagements, like I was in Tara's shoes in my mind. Uh, Dylan and Jack I've spoke about. Uh, Mindy, I've already said it was my favorite. I loved Mindy. She was my favorite about the whole, whole film. Loved her. Uh, Liv, such a forgettable character. Who cares about Liv? <laughs> you know, Scream's done this before where they, they take a really uninteresting back like, side character and just like put them into central focus for a minute. It's a shame. I don't think the actress did anything wrong. It's just, why was she there to begin with, you know? Give her more lines. Give her more stuff to do. Uh, give her some solo moments in the film or something, you know? Amber. Yeah, she was alright. Um, I liked her as a character more than I liked her as the killer, quote-unquote. And it's kind of a shame that she uh, didn't have more to kind of sow those seeds a little bit earlier to really get people thinking because at the moment, unless Mindy was like straight out just like accusing you of something, like you had no real reason to suspect people. So it would have been nice to have that. Yeah, I think like Richie would have always had a bit of a suspicion just because of the Billy Loomis thing. But we need a little bit more from Amber, you know, because it makes more sense for it to be like Sam's best friend or like Tara's like best friend but there wasn't a lot of friendshipness going on like there was a little bit of compassionate when Tara was in hospital but like there wasn't enough um established friendship whereas like with Billy and Stu like you knew they were mates because they obviously spent a lot of time together outside of school Chad uh Chad was pretty good I enjoyed him actually he was sort of like the uh the opposite of Bindi, but they were both in the same boathouse because they were obviously they were both related to Randy, I think. So they were both great. I liked them. Uh, obviously, we had a uh, Martha come back, Randy's sister, for a little cameo. Yeah, that was nice. It kind of feels like a shame when you get people back just to kind of repeat stuff they did in earlier films because it feels really one note and it's just like oh if you didn't get it it's because she said this in this film we're gonna make her say it again i would like to have seen her do a bit more <laughs> i really really would um i said when i when i talked about scream 3 which is it, it was so random and weird that she was there she was just thrown in randomly like there was never ever any mention that she that randy i think even had a sister and then why was she in hollywood in a random trailer it just didn't make sense and in this, like, you come to her house, and, and Mindy is quite relevant to this, so it would have been nice to have seen a bit more of her. And another probably not so thought about person, because he gets killed quite interesting, 
uh, the guy played Vince, the sort of like weird asshole biker guy from the beginning. Uh, played by um Kyle uh, Gallner, and I'm surprised he has such a small role in this film because that guy has been in a lot of things, including Nightmare on Elm Street, the the remake. He played Quentin Smith, another Wes Craven property. Kind of bizarre that like he's in this film for such a small role. I feel like he should have had much more to do because the guy is, compared to other people on this list, this guy's been working nonstop every single year for years. That means something. <laughs> that that accounts for something. And he, he has several things still in, in the works. You know, you don't want to ignore actors like that and give them side rules and then have all these brand new people in who do next to nothing. He could have been uh, an ongoing person of suspicion throughout the film and just give him more lines and more roles and more stuff to do. It would have been so much more interesting because the guy can do it. The guy can handle that type of stuff, you know? He can play that role very, very well. So that's my uh, review of Scream from 2022, at least my initial thoughts and impressions from watching it in the cinema. Don't have that kind of ability to deep dive on the detail, like I said, but this is just my general thoughts and feelings from what I remember about the film and the notes that I wrote after I watched it. So do let me know what you think uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, or any other platform that you wish. Please do check out the links below. Give me a follow on all those things and then let me know what you think on the YouTube as well. Give the podcast a little follow on Spotify and stuff. That would be nice. And check out next episodes. The next one's going to be pretty cool. Going to be doing a collaboration with the podcast Scare Talk. We're going to be talking some Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So if you do like that film, that could be one to tune into for the next episode. So do look out for that. But that is enough Scream Talk for me today. I'll give this one a solid 4 out of 5. I think it's pretty good and comparable to other films within the franchise. But for now, I will see you all in the next one.